Hello and welcome to episode 69 of Just Keep Writing. A podcast for writers. Bye, writers. To keep you writing. I'm Marshall. I'm Nick. I'm Brent. And I'm Will. Well, gents, we're back at it. Seems like it's been kind of a long time. Either that or we've all been really busy since the last time we recorded. But uh, let's play a little catch up. Uh, let's start with Discord. Will, you got some Discord stuff for us. Go ahead, my friend. Sure. So we're trying to do write-ins on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and every other Sunday. Uh, it'll be on the Eastern Standard Time, usually around 9 o'clock on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And on Sundays, it'll be at 8 p.m. Um, and it's Eastern Standard Time. Uh, when you join our Discord, we'll actually make announcements of when they're having them. Uh, we've had five so far, and they've actually been really fun and they've gone really well um it's just a good place for everyone to come in and kind of just have some sprints that are 20 to 35 minutes long then we all talk and then we go back to sprinting so that's really fun and then we're also doing i'm gonna host a book club for the month of august and when you join our discord you will get a zoom link for that night it'll be on um August 29th uh, at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And the first book we're actually going to read and discuss is The Unbroken by C.L. Clark. Um, all of us have really loved it over here, and I think that's a really great book to start our book club off. Uh, so join Discord so you can be in the now of what we're doing and get all the perks. Dude, I'm so stoked you guys are doing The Unbroken. I went back to it while I was at while I was camping last week. And I'm like, that was the last book I read. I read a bunch of out there, but um, about, I've got about a quarter of it left. It's amazing. So good. What are we doing? What was next? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you, 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 uh, you got to tell <laughs> us about your um, experience at, in Colorado. Yeah, so the last time we got together and recorded, that's why I was saying it's been a while. We actually recorded two episodes because Nick and myself went out to Colorado to start a residency at Western um, University out in Gunnison. And I don't know. It was amazing. It was intense. Um, so we did one week there and then we traveled back and then one week remotely because um, of COVID and stuff like that. Right. Um, but yeah, it was amazing. We had some incredible speakers, incredible classes, met some awesome people. Speaking of the discord, um, there's some new folks in the discord and they are from Western. So say hi to, you know, Tia and Nikki and anybody else that jumps in there. So shout out to them. They're awesome folks. Um, but yeah. So Nick, what, what, what are you, what are you thinking? How did, how did, how did, how did it go for you, buddy? We got to see each other. That was exciting. I know. Like that was kind of <laughs> like the reason why I totally joined the program was an excuse to say hang out with you for a week. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, Western Colorado University is great. Um, it's the our director for genre fiction is Fran Wild, which <clears throat> you can catch her episode with us um, about Riverland, which I feel like was like a couple months ago, but really it was almost a year ago, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's so crazy, but Fran. And her staff do an amazing job. A huge shout out to Carlos Hernandez as well. Um, That's awesome. I just did Sal and Gabby break the universe. And I'm so happy for him to be writing and like happy that he's with Hyperion and Rick Riordan and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it was, it was just a great week. It was, it was writing retreat and workshop plus some. Um, I kind of like school. <laughs> it, yeah, it's like school. 
Like it, it was weird because, <laughs> but it felt more like a conference, like when we were there, because the yeah. best part. Right? Well, and we're used to writing excuses, right? And future scapes uh, for me, and we workshopped, but like there was trust established. Like there was classes given on this is how we workshop here, um, and and so that that really helped out in in digesting feedback from other people. Um, because, you know, I got to get to know some people first before they gave me feedback. And, you know, my first day wasn't, hey, here's your story. These are things I hated, um, you know, <laughs> like, and that's kind of been my experience. And so, like, it was a great reversal of that. I loved being taught new techniques or new devices to use and then being able to come back the next day and talk about it. Like, hey, take the next five minutes. You're going to write this. Just to see, like, we've given you plenty of examples. We talked about it. You've read about it. Like, do it now. Um, I, I thought that was really cool to be able to practice that and come back and talk about it, um, which that's the school element of it, right? Um, you know, and, it, and it's nice to be starting fresh, I guess you could say, in a, in a work. But we ended up writing stories, um, and I was really happy with our with mine. Nick, I know we both kind of wrote something that was kind of personal. Um, and then we workshopped them. And like Nick said, the workshop was the only positive, really the only positive workshop experience I've had. Um, and this wasn't my first workshop. It's not like I've done two in the, you know, I've done, a, I've done a few. And um, this one was actually good. And I can't wait to work on the story based on that feedback. So that says something a lot about how the program was structured. And of course, the incredible instructors. and one other thing we got to mention, Nick, is some of the um, guests that came to speak to us. Um, Dongwon Song came to speak to us about being an agent. Um, we had James S.A. Corey come speak to us. Malka Older. Um, who am I forgetting? Um, Darcy Little Badger. Um, oh, Darcy was there. That's awesome. Oh, she was I, awesome, I mean, dude. I feel so like cool. we could pull up a full list. I, yeah. It was, <laughs> was a, just a really good week. Yeah, a few yeah. of the people. Mal- Malka was probably the most impactful because Malka yeah. got to teach like a four-hour class with us. Yeah, and it was and it was right at the end too. It was really cool. So. Oh man, yeah, Re- really good week. Uh, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people that I'm, I'm reading now. Um, that that's mm-hmm. on my read list. Um, basically just off conversations and and yet again, we have a good group of people that we're going to school with that we've connected with and things like that. And we're kind of bringing into the community. Um, so I'm happy about that. And we that. have a mixture of kind of cohorts too. We have people that we met in the screenwriting group, um, you know, that were there at the same time as us as well. So that was kind of cool. Um, you know, having the different cohorts and stuff, but knowing who's, who you're kind of going to be with the next few years um, and knowing other people will cycle in too is really cool. So um, we got to see Elon shout out to him um, as well. Uh, he was finishing up the program and he's one of my favorite people ever. So he's in the discord as well. So, well, that's awesome. I'm glad to hear it went well. So, okay. Question. Yeah. What specific thing are you going to add into your writing? I guess, regiment now based on what you did at this class. Oh, Oh, I I'm going to go first. All right. Now this is honestly based on the last class from Malcolm older she had this way of talking about revolutions and like and like picturing the world post revolution that made me actually hammer out 
the ending of my current work in progress just through that. So like just this exercise of envision, like just taking that extra step in time and processing what your world will look like when this is all over helps you kind of deal with what you've got to deal with to get there. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Yeah. Cause I mean, I love Malco. So yeah, that makes perfect (laughs) sense. All right, Nick, what about you? Man, I, I learned how to write myself into my characters. Uh, so that I wrote a suspense short story, uh, based on military PTSD and I cried and I cried and I cried over six lines. Um, and I needed it. I needed to be able to learn how to write myself into, into these characters that I have. Um, because one of my, my goals is to always write about, uh, PTSD and mental health in, in whether it's not, maybe not always the struggle of it, but the aftermath of it or like running into like societal issues with it and things like that, you know, and that's one thing I had to learn and I learned it the hard way and the only way to learn it. I mean that, yeah, that that's the only way to learn it is the hard way. And I'm proud of you for learning that. That is huge. Like, I don't think you understand like how huge that is in like the journey as a writer, because I think it just, it just in general in society, people are taught to shrink themselves. And so I think sometimes writers have a hard time learning. It's okay to put yourself into the story. And, yeah. um, I mean, I know y'all have heard me say it before. You got bleed on the page. So I mm-hmm. think you yeah. bled on the page a little bit. So I'm oh. proud of you. That's awesome. I love hearing that. I honestly, I, I'm happy I'm writing this story and I, I'm happy with the direction and the feedback that I got. Um, I mean, Fran gave me a lot. Class gave me a lot. Uh, Will gave me or is going to give me a bunch to work with as well because he's read it. So, I, you know, I'm happy with the direction that I'm going with it. So, but yeah, definitely, definitely blood on the page. And like, it was something I haven't done like that before. Like, no, that's huge. And it was funny the night we were writing it, like he was crying. I was crying. The same thing. (laughs) I kept, I I kept, I kept like writing a couple lines, trying to cry. Then I'd walk around the building. I'd come back. I'd write some more. Like, it was just one of those things. Like we just had to kind of process through, but it was good having the support there and writing with other people again. It brought me back to all those times of, you know, sitting on the boat and just talking about stories and then sitting down and writing and kind of like what Will was talking about with the write-ins too. It's like, there's something about sitting around other writers while they're writing and then kind of getting a process through it. Um, I think it's important. It's that group energy. It's like, I I think in a way it's, it's almost the same thing as like why people go to nightclubs. You have the people Mm -hmm. around, you have the energy, you're all there like for the same reason. And you kind of feed off of each other. So I think that's, I think that's why a good group of writers can like feed each other like that. So, ah, yeah. I'm so happy this all went well and it was productive and yeah. seems like y'all guys walked away from it with some good stuff. Yeah, oh yeah. No, I'm, it's it's going to be, the program is going to be great. I can't recommend it enough. It's awesome. So I'm, I'm excited to be part of it. Um, but maybe we should, let's transfer, trans, uh, what, what should transition? I say? Transition? transition. Yeah. Let's all transition right. over and talk about somebody else who wrote a thing. Um, uh, yeah, Brent. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to turn it over to Will to uh, kind of start the conversation. We're going to talk about something Brent wrote and that got published recently. So let's, let's go. 
All right. So we're going to talk about Brent's um, story, Faithful Delirium, that came out in Beneath Ceaseless Skies um, in issue 335. I put a link to it in our Discord just as a precursor for everyone who's in there that they could read it. I would implore everyone before you listen to this episode, it's a great short story that's really just – it's. It's so rich, and there are so many wonderful things about it, and I can't wait for us to talk about it. Um, so my first question, Brent, was let's talk about the idea itself. How okay. did this come about? Okay. Um, so I guess I'll I'll preamble this with some advice, I guess. Um, so I think sometimes like when as writers, we're kind of always told to strive for originality or whatever. I don't think that exists. Not really. I prefer to think of striving for authenticity. So I run to my inspirations. If something inspires me, I run to it and I don't care. And I'm open about like what inspired me. So for this story, the the single, I can nail it down to a character and I can nail it down to a scene. So the character that inspired this was Ebony Ma from um, Infinity War. The scene that inspired it was that very first scene when Infinity War opens and he's walking amongst the corpses of the Asgardians and he's basically like, you should all be so grateful that Thanos is blessing you and that you're all part of this this, um, great purpose of his. And that, that resonated with me so strongly. And then his character throughout the movie just resonated with me. And I was like, I have to do something with this. There's there's something here, right? And then there was also an inspira- uh, inspiration from another series that's totally separate. So um, I don't know if anyone's ever read the Powder Mage trilogy, but um, in the second book of the Powder Mage trilogy, there was a god who was wounded. And this wound basically was driving him crazy because he couldn't die from it because he's immortal and he's stuck with his wound and he can't die from it. And it's just driven him insane. And so the Ebony Ma and that, those two things. So I, I guess I should say the reason that I was able to even marry these two weird concepts is because I keep a little notebook and as I read things, as I watch things, as I, I'm exposed to things. If it interests me or if it catches my eye, I write it down and I'll be like, I like this or this scene caught my attention or this thing. And then sometimes I'll go back and like I'll look through things that like I liked and stuff will just start connecting and little synapses, I guess, in my head go off and my subconscious will stew it up into a little recipe. So that's basically what inspired this story was those (laughs) two initial things, the that opening scene in Infinity War and this character in the Powder Mage trilogy. And I just kind of married the two together. So with that, can you give us a pitch for the story? Okay. So let me see how I would pitch this. Um, Ooh, a faithful conqueror in a mission to heal his broken goddess discovers his faith may be misplaced. I guess if I was going to pitch it like that. Yeah. yeah, that's. I feel like that's super appropriate. Um, so I want to just read the first line to everyone because I think this instantly gives us like the kind of story that really is going to draw you in. Uh, the goddess's p- 
pained cries screeched out of the tent and up to the heavens as they did every night. Tell me about that first line because I feel like it really automatically sets the tone that we're like in this other world. Yeah. So I wanted to, I, I, I really wanted to use goddess for that reason because I think goddess, when people hear that, they instantly hear, they instantly think about mythic things. They think about fantastical things. So I get to establish real quick with just that one word that this is a fantasy story. And then when, you know, we talk about like cries up to the heavens, that implies something powerful, right? Because it's like, if if I can hear you all the way from an airplane, like you're, 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 you're pretty powerful as shit. So, you know, and that's also like, so that, that implies that. And then when we say tent, tent establishes a certain kind of time frame, right? So you have a, you already got the mythic thing in your head. Then you're thinking powerful. Then you're thinking tent. So you got all those three things. It's kind of like, it's kind of like breadcrumbs almost. It's like, okay, I got you thinking this. I got you thinking this. I got you thinking this. And then every night implies like, okay, this is something that is going to be central to the story and probably needs to be solved. So, because when you hear like every night, you're thinking like, damn, is someone going to stop this person from screaming? So it, it kind of like, and it, in short stories, especially that first sentence is, it has to do a lot of work. Like it can't just, um, it can't be frivolous. Like it has to, you want to, you want it to carry a lot of weight. And um, so that's what I was trying to do with that first sentence. I was trying to make sure that like, I was giving you a character, I was giving you a setting and I was giving you a problem. And I was giving you all three of those things in one sentence. It's not always easy to do. So uh, you don't necessarily, if anyone's listening, don't think you have to do that with every first sentence. But you either want to establish a lot of shit in your first sentence or you really want that first sentence to capture the hell out of someone's attention. So I prefer to do the sentence that was going to establish a lot because I knew in it as I was writing this story that this was going to have a lot of world building. This was going to have um, things that I would need to establish very quickly. So that meant having sentences that carried a lot of weight and did a lot of work. So that was kind of my thought process. So with that first sentence and you're writing it, was that the first sentence you actually wrote for the story? No. <laughs> uh, I think the first, I, and, and honestly, I, it, it depends on it depends on project to project. I was about to say I usually don't have the first sentence down in the first draft, but actually it depends on the project, so it kind of varies. But with this one, I actually just started writing it with. Um, I opened it up actually with um, Volgram and him and um, Wade sieging like some random city before we actually get to Igal. But I ended up chopping that, and I was like, well, let me just start when he's about to almost solve the problem because that's the other thing with short stories you want to start it as close to the end as you possibly can like you don't want to start too too far it's not like a novel where you can you know drag it out a bit and you should drag it out a bit but with short stories you want to start as close to the end as possible so i knew i needed to start at a point where the problem was almost being solved once i went in to revise and edit in the beginning though my first draft was was longer and it was a it took a little bit to get to the point. 
Okay. So when you were drafting this, like when you first sat down and you had this idea, were you automatically thinking it was a short story or did you feel like it was going to be a novel or were you just not sure? I was aiming for a short. Yeah, no, this one was definitely, um, I was purposely trying to write a short because I wanted to, at the time I was working on a novel, I was working on War King at the time and I wanted to kind of, I needed a break from War King. So I was like, let me write this short. And um, that's kind of what I did. So I knew it was, I knew it was going to be a short for sure. Okay. So now I'm going to read a section of the story. <clears throat> and um, this is when we're introduced to Volgram. And every night for a century, he had stood by her grand beside as she wailed through the shadows and darkness. Volgram, as her utmost priest, solid as his sacred duty to bear witness to the pain that must be born by her. So here we're kind of introduced to Volgram. And is this where you were channeling um, that character, Maul, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. From Infinity, Infinity yeah. War? Was yes. that, was that, yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I wanted to, um, when I was in that scene, I wanted to, I wanted to make him look faithful because that was one thing I definitely got from Ebony Ma that he had this, this godlike faith in in Thanos, and I wanted to establish that real quick with this character, since he is like a simulacrum of um, Ebony Ma in a way. Yeah, now that you say that, like that's exactly who that is. I love it. I love that scene too. Like, there's some, there's a presence too, and like, yeah. uh, I'm and and I think you do a really good job. And I'm, maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit here, Will. Sorry, but doing a do a really good job in the story of showing. Volgram looking out at other people and showing us how above everybody else he is. And the only other thing that only thing that really matters is, is his goddess. And you do a really good job of that. So I just had Thank to throw you. it out there. Now that you said that. <laughs> Thank you. So <clears throat> when you started writing and you were writing Volgram, you had this idea inspired from uh, the infinity war and mall. How did that idea evolve in like Volgram the character into who he was in the story was there an evolution for you like how did you go from point a to what the finished product was with the character yeah so um when i like first obviously i didn't want to rip it off because so so like i was saying about inspirations is like you want lean into your inspirations but uh, like don't blatantly rip it off do it in a way that like you can tell it's a homage and you can tell that someone was inspired by something, but it still feels like your own voice. Now, I think I've mentioned this in previous episodes. You got to write a lot of bad stuff before you get to good stuff. So when you lean to your inspirations, if stuff feels like a ripoff, that's okay. You'll get to the point where you, where your inspirations will feel like they're authentic to you. So I, I'm just a strong advocate in leaning into what interests you and who interests you. And because that. Because at the end of the day, you're your first reader. So that was kind of like why I was like, ah, I love this Ebony Ma character. I want to build something. So I knew, but I also knew Ebony Ma is more of a sci-fi character. And I was like, I wanted to write a fantasy story, especially because I'm letting this other element from this other series leak into it. So I was like, okay, um, I'm going to, I got to make him a fantasy character. So what kind of fantasy character would best serve the role of a fanatic? And I was like a priest. So um, I kind of was like, okay, now what 
I had to sit down. I was like, what specifically about Ebony Ma interests me? Like what caught my attention? And those were the things I hammered out. And I was like, okay, these are the elements that I want to carry into this, into Vogram. I don't necessarily need everything about Ebony Ma. So like, I don't necessarily need Ebony Ma's powers because those, that wasn't really what interests me about Ebony Ma. What interests me was his devotion to this, to this powerful figure and, and the chilling way that this guy was able to justify genocide because my, my God said it's, it's, it's okay. Like, and it's his purpose. So, uh, so I was like, that is the core of what like really interests me. So I was like, that's the core I built Volgram on. So I was like, okay, I have that core. It's a fantasy story. So I'm gonna make him a priest. And then I was like, okay, for that fanaticism to really express itself, he needs the means to, to carry it out. And I was like, I could go the route of making him some all-powerful magician. I was like, but that's not quite as interesting to me. And so I was like, okay, give him an army. And um, yeah, so it's just kind of it was kind of a process of like asking myself questions about like what actually interests me about this particular character and what do I want to emulate from that into my own work. And mm-hmm. uh yeah, so I think that. That's kind of like where that came from. Yeah. Nick, you have a question. Uh, I think you blended a lot of what your inspirations were beautifully into what you wanted. I, I did get a sense of almost like they were crusaders um, with the, I'm doing it in the name of my God. This is right. This is good. You're wrong because you don't follow my God. And I really appreciated that aspect of it. Is there any inspiration from that? Oh yeah, definitely. So, um, I don't know if Will's going to maybe bring this up later, but I mean, I'll be honest, being <laughs> being a, a black gay man who grew up around the church, there's definitely there was definitely some of that that um, criticism, I guess, that I drew on when once I actually started really digging into the story, because this is the this is the other thing. This is the scary thing about writing authentically, though, and I, I'll, I'll warn the audience and you know writers about this is that the more when you're when you're really writing from a place of authenticity and interest and the things that you really want to talk about things that you don't necessarily intend to slip out are going to slip out because you're you're writing from you're writing from the soul i guess maybe is the word for it so as i was revising it and reading through it i was like Oh, I was I was saying that too. And <laughs> I know where that's from. You know, because you, you get to a point where you kind of like you, you you're analyzing yourself and you know yourself. And um yeah, so definitely that the the church definitely seeped into that story. Unintentionally at first, and then as I was revising it, I was like, let's stick with it, let's massage it out, let's make it like kind of work. So so that's that was a good segue, because I want to read um, this paragraph. And tell me if I'm saying the city wrong, too. You can correct me. Oh, it's um, Igal. I'll just say Igal. Okay. Igal, yeah. Volgrim bit back his disgust the next morning as he viewed the city of Igal in the daylight. He swore he could smell the heresy wafting on the air from it. Thick green clouds rose from the smokestacks of rumbling factories working mantis steel. 
the altered sky marched their preparation for his arrival. They knew righteous wrath lurked in wait of the right moment. So I feel like everything that you just talked about is summed up in that paragraph. And like, you know, you talk about when you're writing from like a deep core of your soul, right? Like, and and you're really didn't realize that that's what you were writing. But here you are actually having to get into the head and the space of someone who is coming in a um, deeply religious um, train of thought. Was that difficult for you to get into that mindset when you're used to being on the other end of receiving that wrath? Honestly, no. In fact, it was scarily easy to slip into his mindset. And I'll say the reason is because to survive people with that mindset, you have to understand their mindset. Like to be able to navigate that world and come out mostly intact requires you to understand their tactics and their 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 thinking and and how you know i mean i i you know i i had a um i had an encounter not too long ago i was stuck on the elevator with this uh woman and me and my friend we're stuck on the elevator with this woman and it is it's late and obviously she's drunk and she just goes into this huge rant about mass right and so i'm looking at my friend and i'm like we're not doing this with her right now. We're going to shake our heads. We're going to agree and we're going to get off this elevator. Okay. And that's exactly what we did. And I think it's much the same thing when you grow up in these, these ultra religious environments and you may not fit into what their view of purity is or whatever. You learn to, you learn to shake your head, agree and move on. Or you say what you got to say to get out of the conversation and survive. So I, I would say it is. It was not hard at all to slip in the Vogelman's mindset. In fact, I think that's why he intrigued me so much is because in a way, it was like, I know that person. I know. And I mean, hell, I think uh, you see it in the news. You see this. You see this rise of people who, in spite of all evidence to the contrary, they will continue to believe what they want to believe and they will twist their faith to make any kind of justification for any horrible thing. So I would say, if anything, Vogelman was very easy to write the mindset of. Awesome. So I'm going to read another section of the story. And may the goddess always make it so, Bach said. She was short and her skin a pale purple. Pimples dotted her face, some hard and others looking ready to burst with pus. Her lips had all but vanished, repulsive in appearance, much like himself. It came from the kiss of the goddess, beauty detracted from worship. You could not look upon the face of divinity and keep foolish physical concerns. He was glad for the alterations brought upon him by their goddess, and he knew she was too. They both shared eyes that were too big and teeth that had become black and sharpened. But Volgram's skin was a ghastly gray and fingers unnaturally long, each now thick and yellow. So I feel like this is a, I texted you everyone about this one. I was like, wow, that gives me a really great visual. So my first question, as far as the descriptions, 
were the visuals something that was in your head right away of their appearance when you were writing this story? For Vogrums, yes. For Box, no. And honestly, I mean, this this may come as a surprise, but this, this is actually one of the things about the story I wish I could change, actually. Um, only because it wasn't until I was done and a friend pointed it out that I realized there was an implication in their appearance that I didn't mean to be there. And then I was like, oh, that is kind of icky. So I'll, I'll say my original intention and I'll say what my friend pointed out and then what made me kind of rethink it. So my original intention was I was kind of drawing a parallel to certain things in Catholicism that always struck me as like, like what? Like the whole ancient practice or whatever, where people like whip their backs and shit. And it's like the pains for God. And I'm like, but you're making yourself into a bloody mess. What the what the fuck? Like, <laughs> or the whole idea of like, I'm going to cloister myself into this mountainous retreat and never see anyone I love or care about again, or I won't see them for years at a time. I'm like, what the hell? Like what? And, you know, so it's just, I was paralleling, trying to parallel these, these, these ways that these practices that are actually really oppressive and harmful that people find ways to justify for themselves. So I was doing that with the whole appearance where it's like, obviously, um, maybe the person, your God that loves you shouldn't be transforming you into this, to this creature, to these creatures. But then my friend pointed something out and I was like, oh, actually, you kind of have a point. So what, what she kind of mentioned was that, well, in a way though, you're kind of saying that attractiveness is equivalent to goodness and that being ugly is a, is an indicator of evil. And I was like, that is not something I wanted to do because obviously that is a, that is a harmful trope. And we see it even now in society where people will excuse awful shit that people do just because they're pretty. And so when I sat back and thought about it, I was like, I wish I could change that actually, because that's not something that's not a message I agree with. And I could see how somebody would draw that out of the story. But, um, but my original intent was to kind of try to draw a parallel between like, some of the practices in like Catholicism that I think sometimes our religion in general, that I just think sometimes are like restrictive in a very destructive way. So. Yeah. And and I, and I actually liked, I mean, I can see where you can draw that conclusion a bit, but again, if you're talking about, I mean, this is something that you see in fantasy and science fiction though. And of course I always think of the Sith, right? right? You know, a Sith Lord, you know, as dark, the darker they go, you know, the eyes colors change, stuff like that. So I kind of took it that way. But again, you're right. That is kind of like they're the evil people. So of course they're going to be disfigured. And then, you know, I, I totally get it. Right. But like, I think for a fantasy story, I think, I don't know. I, I think you're okay. Right. I mean, I'm not like, no, I don't feel like, I don't feel like horrible about it. It's just yeah. that when they kind of pointed it out and we talked about it a bit and they weren't even like, oh, this is disgusting. You have to change it. It wasn't like that. It was just more of a like the discussion. I was kind of yeah. like, oh, you're right. That is kind of, I was like, that's not something I want to draw a parallel in because it is it is a problem, I think, in society in general that we we let the idea that someone's attractiveness gives them leeway to do bad shit. And people who are ugly, like you see it all the time where people will say, well, they'll talk about like Trump's weight or they'll talk about his appearance. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but that really doesn't matter. Like it, he could be the most attractive guy on the planet. It's still, still about bad person. bullshit. He's, he's doing. still doing horrible things, right? Yeah. So, so I can. So I kind of was like, ah, 
maybe if I could, I would go back and tweak that a little bit. But I, yeah, I took those transformations as their inner personalities reflecting on the outside. Uh, you know, mm. they, you know, you may be pretty on the outside, but if you're ugly on the inside, you're ugly on the inside. I, I, I thought it was a clever way to show that, like, they accepted the goddess and they were doing these bad things and then they're transforming into hideous creatures. I took it as, you know, it was just their inside. Now, ref- like, how they look on the inside is now how they look on the outside. Yeah, and I, I totally can see both sides of it. So it's not like one of those things where I'm, like, drastically, like, want to email Scott and be like, oh, let me change it. You know, it's just one of those things. Because I think, too, also, as a as a writer, what you got to kind of accept is, like, no story is going to be perfect. No story is going to be without a potential flaw or without something that you you wish you could go back and tweak. Like, that's just that's just the nature of being a writer who wants to put work out there to be consumed. Like, there's no way to account for however many people have read the story and I, there's no way I could account for all of them. Like I have to create the best thing that I think I can create and feel comfortable having out in the world and kind of let, let, let the chips fall where they may. So, so I want to follow up on, I one I thought that was really descriptive and really painted a really strong picture, but I want to be devil's advocate for a minute. Do you think when you talked about beauty and ugliness do you think this is something that you've internalized of that the beautiful are um, revered like the goddess and it is those that are ugly are automatically um, considered less than or um, wrong? I do you think that was something you were like internalizing and put out in the story and then like looking back thinking of what your friend said, said, oh, that's really interesting that that came out. You know, um, yes, I, I, I would say there is some internalization with that. And, you know, I, I would be <laughs> I, would, I would be remiss to try to act like, no, of course not. I never I never I never let someone's attractiveness let them scale or stuff like, no, that's bullshit. That'd be a lie. I, I, I mean, I definitely think that there is some internalization with that. And I mean, it it would be like I say it would be. I would be remiss to try to act like that's not the case. Like, I mean, first of all, I, I'm a gay man. Like our culture is literally just like attractiveness is attractiveness is goodness, like thrown in our faces, like all the time. So even though I can reflect and know better, like that's that. And that, and I think too, this is the thing where you see a lot of these discussions on, on Twitter, when people point out elements and stories that, that might be a bit problematic. And then the person automatically gets defensive. They're like, Oh, well, I'm not that kind of person. Oh, I'm not that. It's not necessarily calling you that kind of person, but there may have been something internalized there or something you need to you need to explore. And the so this is the this is the tightrope of being a writer that's publishing things, right? Because as you're writing, you're still growing. So so you kind of have to accept that like you're putting you're going to put imperfect work out there and people are going to notice these things and people and people will call you out on them. And I think your best bet as an author is to, before you even, and I would, I would say this is on any level, before you send, before you hit send on that first piece to anybody, you need to figure out for yourself, how am I going to handle criticism? How am I going to handle criticism that makes me uncomfortable? How am I going to handle criticism that is blatantly wrong? Or 
how am I going to handle criticism that attacks me as a person? Like you have to, you have to negotiate all these things with yourself. I think before you even hit send. And I told myself a long time ago that I would one be open to it, but also evaluate who it's coming from and 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 if it's a relationship where I should even respond. Sometimes you have to you have to let people critique your work without you being present. And in this case, this was a friend. So it was different. It was a friend. We had that relationship. We've already exchanged work back and forth plenty of times. So that rapport was there. So it was so it was a critique I was able to totally take and not have it, you know, it didn't come from a it wasn't negative, I guess. But to yeah. circle back to what you were saying, like I definitely do think that there, there's internalization there. Yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, uh, I was just telling like uh, Marshall about Pride a couple of weeks ago. That's that was just like a sea of pretty ass people, and you know, pretty ass people doing fun shit or whatever. And it's like, you know, you internalize things without even realizing that you're internalizing them. Like, and and the unfortunate part about being a writer is that your internalization slip out on the page. Like, like I was saying before about the whole thing about me criticizing religion, I didn't necessarily realize that was happening until I went back and reread the story. And you're still not going to catch everything that you put out on the page. Um, there was actually, when I was in college, I met this writer, Milan Dressler. She's a, a novelist, great person. She sat us down and we were all like creative writers at the time. And she was saying, if I could offer you any advice, she was like, before you... Before you ever have anything that like a novel get published, talk to your friends, talk to your family and tell them that they're not in these stories because they will read themselves into them and you will offend people. You will hurt people's feelings and and you'll have to deal with a whole host of shit. So I, I, I took that advice to heart. And the reason she said that and she also said, too, you have to be mindful that you're going to put stuff on the page that you may not have meant for people to know about you or that you may not have even wanted to put on the page, but that's the risk you take as a writer. So these are all things I've kind of like internalized and kind of like discussed with myself, I guess, before I really started putting stories out there. And yeah, so to bring it all back, yes, I think there was some internalization there. And, And I think if there wasn't, or if I didn't realize that there wasn't, it wouldn't have made me think twice and be like, damn, I should change that. Like I would have, you know, <laughs> I think um, it, it became like a damn, I should change that because like I realized she was right. And it, and it, and I mean, it didn't necessarily suck. It was just one of those things where I was like, ooh, be careful of that in the future. Like think about that going forward. So, and I, and this is why like I really liked um, Marshall Nick saying they had like a good writer, writing group at their um, classes because that's what that's what a good writing network does. When you have good friends who are writers, they can gently tell you these things and you can, you know, if if you think it's valid, you can choose to think about it going forward in your work and you uplift each other that way. So, yeah, I was definitely grateful for the critique, but it was definitely something that made me like think like, oh, shit, I need to think about this going forward and how I and. How do I describe my antagonist? How do I describe my protagonist? How do I describe the other? How do I, you know, des- describe the mm-hmm. fantastical? Like all of that, like, you know, so, yeah. Awesome. No, I think that's a really great point. Um, I'm going to read another section. Uh, the words resonated now and Volgram endeavored to accept the general. And now a true genuine friendship existed between them. Friendship when rooted in unyielding respect 
could birth a thousand acts of courage and as many much-needed whispers of truth. General Bach had steadied him across many a conquest and showed him the way of caution when his dedication to the goddess sometimes stoked him to unbridled righteous passion. So here we see two people who are uh, fanatics. Where we, we have um, the General Bach really kind of rain Volgram in sometimes, but at the same time, they both believe their own shit. Yeah. So tell me about that relationship. Was that something that like was there automatically when you were writing it? Or was it something that you gave thought of about like when building a, um, a someone who's like very highly religiously fanatic? So in the first draft, Bach wasn't there. Um, in the first draft, it was just straight up Volgram. And upon rereading it, I realized I'm like, okay, so this guy's a priest. He's a general. He knows logistics. He knows how to wage warfare. I'm like, ah, it's a, it's, it's a lot. It's giving Mary Sue. So I was like, okay, I need to. And also too, I was like, well, would it make sense? Would, would a guy with this much fanaticism really be able to manage an army? Would he know to pull back when something wasn't going right? Or would he know how to say, okay, we rest for the day? Like somebody like him would be like, no, we persist, we persist, we persist. Like, so I was like, okay, there needs to be an opposing force that kind of grounds him, but doesn't diminish him. So I kind of came up with Bach. It to I wanted Bach to be a woman because one, I don't think you see enough uh, female generals in fantasy. And, you know, so I was like, ah, that's cool. And typically what you see is the... Um, the woman is made the hysterical one, bent mad on power and, and unable to control her feelings. Like, I mean, I love the Dark Phoenix, right? Dark Phoenix is one of my favorite characters ever. But that's it, uh, that's a that's part of a long string of characters that when women all of a sudden get great power, they become these hysterical, dark creatures, unable to control themselves. And they want to burn the world or destroy it. You see it with Dark Phoenix. You see it with Scarlet Witch. You see it with... um. You see it with Ravenna. You see it with all these characters that, like these women characters, when they grasp power, they become they become illogical, hungry, power hungry things. And I was like, ah, let's 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 try to subvert that a little bit. Let's have Volgrim be this guy who's just kind of like this almost hysterical fanatic, and let the woman be the logical warrior. And so, um, so that, that was kind of like what I was thinking. I was like, let me subvert that a little bit. And also, too, I was. I didn't think that I didn't think that they would be friends right away because I'm like, that wouldn't make sense. Like a guy like him, a fanatic like him would be intensely jealous. Like I was like, I just don't see, I just didn't see him like making a lot of space for friendship. But I, what I kind of like was thinking that it would eventually grow into that because they both would see that, Oh, well, you know, we may not like each other necessarily right away, but we both, we both have love for the goddess. And, and I, I think that in Volgram's head, uh, at least for me as an outside looking in, I don't really think they were friends. But I think in his head, his fanaticism like made them friends, and they were just bonded. They were bonded in their like they were just bonded in this unyielding belief. I guess, yeah. When I th- I think you tied that together, and I I also didn't get that they were like buddies, but like yeah. I really liked. Um, what brought them together though, was you have this part in italics from the goddess herself saying like, you're not going to know jealousy, you know, um, leave behind your selfish moral concerns and love only me. And it's like, they're like, 
I could see two fanatics with a similar goal being like, all right, we can deal with each other kind of thing. I think, I think you did right. a good job with that. Um, having the goddess be the one to kind of be like, you know, you guys got to be friends right now because I will it to be so, you know? Right, right. Okay, so I want to skip ahead of when they're like in the heat of the battle. And I want to read um, this one paragraph. The believers ran at the alabaster defender. He stepped back and spread his arms wide as a net of orange energy came from his fingertips. With a thrust, it flew forward and wrapped around the believers. It cut through their flesh like hot blades, and they were left in meaty chunks before they could even manage a scream. Again, a very visual, descriptive scene. And I feel like one thing you do really, really well, I mean, you do a lot of things well in this story, but like one thing that I think was really drawn to me was the battle itself. You both had the ability to make it epic, but at the same time, really personal. So when you were first writing these like battle scenes with the magic, is that something that you're instinctively you feel like you do really well, or do you feel like you had to have this balancing act to make it both epic, but at the same time about the personal for Volgrim, but I also felt it for the other side of the magic users defending the city. So, um, okay. So first that net I got, since I always talk about inspirations, I got that from the first Resident Evil when they were in the hallway and the, the, the net kept, the lasers kept coming <laughs> up mm-hmm. and eventually became a net and just chopped the guy to pieces. So that's where I got that from. So anyway, uh, with that out the way, uh, I had to practice. This is the culmination of just writing, writing, writing. Like when I first first started writing battle scenes, they were <laughs> they were all over the place. I was jumping from head to head to head because I had this idea when I first was writing large battle scenes that I somehow had to get the reader into every single possible person's head in order for them to understand the scope of it. When in truth, you don't really need to do that. You What you need to do is to find a couple of focal points and tell the battle from their perspective. And you have to do it. You have There is a balancing act between providing the physical details of the battle, but also the emotional ones of it, right? So like, I guess if you, let's let's just think about D-Day. You have a, a regular soldier. He's coming up on the beach. He has no fucking idea about any of the other ships that have came up on the beach. And in fact, even if he could, he wouldn't be able to. Like he's focused on getting up this beach, getting past this thing. He's his heart's pumping. He's thinking about why the fuck am I here? Like you know, he, he's thinking about I want to go home. Like all those different things, right? You and that's what you really want to tap into to create that that epic feeling. You want to give readers a sense of like what this person is feeling and and what they're observing. So you have to do feelings, observations, feelings, observations. You have to find a way to really melt the two. And I think I I can't remember. I wish I could remember which writer it was that said this, but um, they kind of, this kind of, like I said, practice, 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 but they kind of mentioned like you want to, the, the intensity comes from the emotions, not from what's actually happening on the field. Like, and that's how you avoid writing. He punched her. He kicked her. He's body slammed her. You know, just repetitive mode. You want to talk about what that person feels, right? Like if, if like they punch someone up against the wall with their elbow and they crunch their nose, it's the first time they 
did that to somebody, they're freaking the fuck out in their head. Like you want to describe that. Or if you know they're fighting with the sword and they're getting tired and the sword's feeling heavy, you want to describe that. Like you don't want to just say he slashed, he slashed, he dropped his sword. Like you want to talk about him having a moment of like, oh shit, like this sword's getting heavy. I'm getting tired. Like what the hell am I going to do? Like you want you you really that's how you kind of build the the epicness is, is through that the, those focal those character focal points and for this story I kind of like when it came to the battle I was like okay obviously my two focal points are Volgrum and the Alabaster Defender now in the in like I think the second version of it I tried to have Bach in there a little bit but it wasn't working as much so I was like nope Volgrum alabaster these are the these are the two opposing points and i have to get them to where they're facing each other but before that how complicated is that path before they clash and that that was kind of like i think if if it if it was done well that that's kind of like what what makes it feel epic is that you know that wogram has this this building sense of like what the heck? I can't lose this. Like it's somewhere in this chaos. I gotta find it. And whereas Alabaster Defender is like, I'm protecting my people. You're all fucking heathens. Like get away from my city, <laughs> you know. And it's like having those two competing. It's not even like their goals are similar. Like they're not even like exact opposite goals in a way. Like so, I think just yeah, like having those two focal points. If I had to feel like I'm rambling here, but to bring it back to create this, uh, if you want to really create an epic battle. Find your focal points and tell it from their perspective and make sure that you are telling us as much how they feel as they as what they are doing. So, yeah. Awesome. So here I'm going to read more into the story when the goddess is um, actually over her sickness and fever. And she says, freedom in the East meant I wanted to return to my childhood home. My heart in ashes was my disgust at what you've done. Stars, fierce and painful, began to shine in her afro. You are the heathens, you are the only heathens that have ever ruined anything of mine. You mirrored the true purpose of my followers with your fanaticism. I feel like this is like, um, I don't want to say the heart, but I feel like this is like a really commentary on what you were talking about with religion. Can you yes. dive in a little bit about that paragraph and like, Oh yeah, absolutely. Did it, oh. did it take you, did it take you time to articulate the words that you wanted? Um, like how did that evolve? So I knew I, once I realized I was critiquing um, religion and the church in a way, I knew I wanted to critique misinterpretation of, of, holy text and i wanted to i wanted to critique how people will take something and and reinterpret it either out of ignorance or out of willful maliciousness to create a new purpose so i always think of this like um in in the bible where they talk about uh i'm i'm going to mess up the quote so Christians don't get mad, but it was basically like the camel through the eye of a needle, right? So people literally used to think, used to think like camels had to walk through a needle. That was like a test of faith, like a little eye of a needle was something. I can't remember the exact quote, but anyway, 
the what they actually meant a needle was a narrow valley like a camel through a very narrow valley not an actual fucking needle but <laughs> it, it was misinterpreted it was misinterpreted and it was you know and it was made to mean something that it wasn't and so i knew i wanted to critique that and i wanted to kind of like have because i always think about like what what if what would what would these Christians do if God came down and was like, I never said shit about homosexuality? <laughs> what would they actually do? Like, would they would they believe it? Would they feel betrayed? Would they would they curse God? Like, what what would what would someone do? Because I I always think about that. Like, what would people who have used their religion to justify their hate? What would they actually do if the deity that they worship told them that you fucked up? That is not what I meant. And that's kind of what I was doing with the goddess in this thing. And it's kind of funny, actually, that this is something I realized, like, again, one of those things I probably made commentary on and didn't really realize it. The goddess is a black woman. And how often do black women have to say, listen to us. And then when people choose to listen to them, they listen how they want. They don't listen to actually what they actually say. So I realized that that kind of got snuck in there too. And I was like, oh, well, I'm going to keep it. But that was my whole, in that whole passage, that's what it's supposed to speak to. It's like people who use their religion to justify horrible things, having to be confronted by that actual divine source telling them like, no, you're a disgrace to me. Like you completely didn't know what you were talking about. And, you know, so I'm not even gonna lie, I was kind of cathartic, like in a way, writing that was actually very cathartic. And um, yeah, so that was kind of like my whole mental behind that one. So, you know, in there, um, Fulgrim learns that, you know, it wasn't the goddess wishes. And he says, you just can't claim delirium, that won't fix it. And I'm going to read this next section. The goddess paused. My life does not depend on worship. It does not depend on love. Consider how long I have been alive. I've known every emotion, every sensation. Your threats are useless banter on the wind. I will live long after my name is forgotten, and I shall enjoy watching you two monsters writhe till the last of your days. Then I want to just, I have a question about that one. Just slow your roll. Um, (laughs) Then I have... um, It goes on, and this is coming near the end. She had ruined him. He had given her endless devotion and love. He had buried all else above himself to love her, and the only rewards she had provided were words that tasted like Karen. What good was devotion if it could be so easily turned aside? Shouldn't the goddess have said, shouldn't the goddess have seen his love, even it had been delivered in a manner unpleasing? Her words echoed in his mind. She was a goddess and knew all and saw all, surely. It's a test of faith, Volgram finally said, <laughs> still kneeling on the floor of the tent. She wants us to serve her. She wants us to serve her in her times of strength as much as we did in her time of weakness. The general smiled and wiped away crusted tears. Of course, of course. What fools we were to have doubt- ever doubted her. They stood up and Volgram believed. So... In that little passage that I read, and you know, that was the end of the story. Um, 
we see these two characters, even after the goddess herself have said that this is not what I wanted to do. And I don't need to be loved. I don't need to be recognized because I'm going to live beyond that. And you have these two characters having a moment of thinking about what they were doing and then still landed on, oh, but we're faithful. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, so, well, so the um, the first part of it was just that, you know, like, like when you really think about a deity and what, what a deity would represent, like, unless the world specifically, you know, because there are some fancy stories, I think, where they tie worship to God's power. But why would they give a fuck? I, I live <laughs> for all eternity. You are nothing to me. You're literally a grain of sand. Like there's, there's nothing you could, there's nothing you could say that would like disturb me. Like I don't need you. And I wanted to kind of like, and again, that was kind of cathartic too, just because it was just like, by towards the end of the story, like I was less in Volgrim and Box head and more in like, fuck y'all, y'all are horrible people. (laughs) And that, and so that was kind of like cathartic they're writing that but um the part where where they kind of like still justify it i i see it all the time right it was like especially where it's like oh well god will forgive my sins they know that i love them but you you're a horrible heathen and you're going to hell and there's no there's no exceptions for you whatsoever Cause you don't believe the way that I believe. And I wanted, I wanted him to kind of like have that moment of self pitying where he was like, but why doesn't she love me? Why doesn't she see me? Like I'm so much, I'm so special because that's how most Christians think. I'm so special. I'm so different. I'm, I perfectly love you, not these other people. And, you know, so that's, that was kind of like what I was doing with that. And then, you know, at the end with like, Oh, of course it's just, it's just a test. She just wanted to make sure I really believed her. I am still special. I am still important. She's she's going to. I I'm not going to let her down. It's like this this idea where, and I think I mean just this past year we've really seen it where people mm-hmm. when they get confronted with information that violates something that is at the core of their identity, they do anything absolutely anything to not have to let that go. They will find a rationale, an explanation, a way around it to not have to let it go. So you see it all the time where it's people will, people don't like getting information that, that confronts their, the biases that they already hold. And a Especially, this is especially true, I think, amongst people who are very, very religious because they, 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 they build their whole lives and identities around this, this, these tenets. And it's why I often think like, (laughs) if, if we, if you were really to be confronted with like something that violates, you know, their, their fundamental beliefs like if if you got if like aliens came down the earth today i think you would see a large majority of christians they wouldn't believe it they would say oh this is a government hoax they're trying to (laughs) they're trying to violate it 
Or some of them would twist it, be like, oh, well, no, this isn't really angels. This is really angels. This is, these are God's messengers. Like they would find a way to, to twist it and to make it fit into their belief set as opposed to having that belief set shattered. And I wanted to do that with Volgram. I wanted to end the story on that point to kind of like, to kind of show that, and it's kind of a bleak way to end it, I guess, because it's like this guy got chumped off by God, literally. His guy literally chumped him off and it still wasn't enough to make him let go of his fanatical beliefs. And yeah, so I, I, I mean, like now that I'm sitting here talking it out, I'm like, damn, that is kind of a bleak way to end the story. But I think it's, a, I think it's a real way. So well, it's a real way, and it fits the character too. I mean, of course, he would twist it this way. Look at all the work he's done leading up to this point. I mean, right, and, right. And, and you're right. I mean, we see the same thing around vaccines and COVID. It's like just because I don't want this thing, I'm going to find that one article that proves my point, even though the science says something else. It's like, yeah, you know, we're yeah. seeing this, we're seeing this all the time. And I think the story mirrors some of confronting those, those things quite well. So. Thank you. Thank you. Nick, you had some. Yeah, no, I, I, I loved your ending. Like that, that little twist was perfect. It resonated. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed too, is like, how the believers reacted um, because you, you see that in, in her face a lot too. When the truth comes out, people have mixed emotions. People have different ways of adjusting and things like that. And, and one of the things that I'm seeing a lot um, in my, not just my religion, but other religions is, you know, people are finally turning around and being like, Hey, like literally the Bible that you justify your actions on tell you to do this this supersedes that like you know not your place to judge save that for for, for god right um right and so i find that that interesting that you you kind of wrote that in there without writing that in there um and, and it's something that i picked on just from my experiences so i'm not sure if that was intentional or not but like i picked it up and i was like okay like i see where you're <laughs> yeah. going with this so in drafting, at least for me, in drafting uh, is usually where the unintentional stuff happens. And it's in revising where I decide what of the unintentional stuff I want to keep and then kind of massage it out and and make it, you, you know, make it more present. But um, so when I first drafted it, that stuff was wasn't meant to be in there. But then upon rereading it and kind of like critically looking at it, I realized like, Okay, as much as I'm inspired by, you know, Ebony Mon, the scene from Infinity War and, you know, Pilot Maze trilogy, I'm also writing about this. And I think that's, um, I think, you know, I, we kind of talked about it with the self-editing, but um, themes. Themes is definitely something I think you have to consider in your work. And not, you know, and that's not to say every story needs to have some weighty theme behind it, but all stories are saying something. And I think you have to kind of figure out what any given story you're writing is saying. And, um, and also too, this was something I kind of learned in college and I've always thought about it in terms of like what I read, what I watch and also what I write are what are the unintentional messages in the story? Right. And I think that kind of goes back to my whole thing about the, the attractiveness, beauty versus ugliness. That was an unintentional message. I didn't mean to put that in there. Not It wasn't intentional, but it was in there, right? So I think you have to um, 
yeah, you have to analyze your you have to analyze your work with as much of an eye or even more so an eye than you do the stuff you read and consume in other um, media formats because you want to. And again, this this comes. I think this comes with time and practice. But um, and I mean, I'm still growing. I'm still trying to get better, trying to learn more. But you just kind of like have to detach yourself from your work at a point and be able to really kind of like look at it and be like, okay, what is this story doing? What is it saying? And and is it saying it in the way that you want it to? So I once I knew it was about religion and kind of like critiquing this this idea of fanaticism and misinterpretation, I tried to lean into it. Awesome. So I just have one more question, then we're done. <clears throat> um, what keeps you writing short stories? Ooh. Um, well, I find I fi- well for me, I have too many ideas. Like I have, I have notebooks of just potential ideas sitting around, and I find that short stories are a gr- great way for me to kind of like work through those and um, you know, and create those little pockets of story and kind of like get out of my system. Um, Cause not everything can be a novel. I would, n- I would never sleep again if I tried to make all these stories into novels, but also too, I think for me, they're, um, they're good at practicing what I'm not necessarily good at sometimes. Like um, I used to write short stories that like, cause I, I feel like, I feel like I'm terrible at setting um, so I, I used to like write short stories that like specifically try to, um, work on setting. And I feel like it was a good way to practice. And, uh, and I mean, you know, it's also a good break for me when I'm writing bigger projects to kind of like, when I'm kind of exhausted a bit with the project, I can take a break and like play in another world and kind of like reset my mind and then come back to the big project. Um, also, I just love I love short stories. I think it's cool to be able to tell what kind of feels like because I don't think this story. I mean, if I try to make it a novel, it would have <laughs> you would have had to just stretch out so mm-hmm. much, and I would have had to add so many more characters, and it would have to do so much more. Whereas, I think with this, like I can drive the point home real quick. This is about. This is about the hypocrisy of fanaticism. Like, real quick, boom, you're in, you're out, and you're done. Whereas opposed with the novel, I feel like you're dealing with, typically with most novels, you're dealing with like five or six different themes going on all at once. Whereas with the short story, you can really laser narrow your focus to that one theme and idea and deliver it well. So, yeah, that's why I like short stories. That's awesome. And everyone can check it out on BeneathCeaselessSkies.com. And we will put it in the show notes because even if you read it before the podcast, now that Brent went through like the beginning, middle and end, now you can reread it and actually have like a lot more thought and knowledge behind it and learn from someone who writes really well and who puts a lot of thought in their work. Yeah. Oh, and a bit of inspiration for everyone out there. Um, Beneath Seas Disguise was one of those markets, short story markets where when I was first coming into the scene, I admired it so much. I loved it so much. And I never thought I could get in it. I was like, this is not going to happen probably for like 10 years. So don't even worry about it. Just read it and love it. 
And um, last year, during you know lockdown and whatnot, and um, I wrote this story, and I was like, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot my shot. So this is my very first story to beneath the skies, and it got accepted. So if I have a message out of all that, is that do the work, put it out there, and believe you can succeed. And this has been Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. You can find us at justkeepwriting.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Feel free to reach out to any of us on our social medias, and please jump in our Just Keep Writing Discord channel. Links to all of that is in the show notes. Lastly, please support our show by going to patreon.com slash justkeepwriting. We offer daily writing prompts, early access to podcast episodes, and much more. Thanks for listening, and just keep writing. (laughs) 